So I'm Amy, uh, Amy Bonesenegger. I have been in ministry, so I started out here at Pepperdine um, from college. I went to Fuller Seminary from Mandiv in the 90s and went into hospital chaplaincy. I always kind of wanted to do congregational ministry, but just, it was not the time. You know, Fuller was this beautifully inclusive community where I learned this concept of biblical equality. It was actually, you know, there's a few times in your life where you realize God has a sense of humor. And um, it was my very last class at Fuller. I had three amazing years. I, seminary was, like, I found myself. I was never, academics were always a little hard for me. I was not an incredible student, and I went to Fuller, and I was getting A's, and I was engaging in the conversations. I was even, like, raising my hand in class every once in a while. But I, it was... I could speak the language and I could understand what we were doing, so I loved it. And Fuller was, I started in 1993, I was there until 1996. At that point, Fuller was completely committed to gender equality, 100%. We were encouraged, we, we, it, was, it was a rule, it was a, you know, a standard in the community that you couldn't use, um, you had to use gender inclusive pronouns in your papers. <clears throat> you could refer to God from a pronoun perspective, whatever way you chose. So that was not that that was open, but we weren't allowed to. No one was allowed to talk about to say man meaning human, human humanity, humankind. And we weren't allowed to say he meaning he, she. And um, so I had this great three years, and I graduated, but I had one. I needed to take one more class, so I was you know four years short or whatever when I graduated. And so my last class was a summer intensive, summer of 1996, a class called um, Women, the Bible, and the Church. It was taught by a man named David Schuller. David was an American Baptist, and he was, any of you know, the organization Christians for Biblical Equality. David was one of their scholars, and he was early in that movement. And he had been my, he taught my um, Biblical Jesus class, I had another class from him, like, I, I knew him. But I didn't know this side of him. And um, I took this class. And it was four straight weeks, all day, every day, about, it was a, a theological framework, theological biblical framework for full gender equality. And I was like, you, God, you wanted to get that in, right? Right. <laughs> and it was so important to me because. I kind of knew in my gut, I believed in my gut that women were equally gifted, called, and responsible. Like I, I knew that, but I still had problems with the Bible. I didn't know what to do with those verses. And David took us through and just worked through everyone and it was such a gift. So I graduated and started looking for a job and I just, I had this moment, um, I remember this is, this is funny, this is such a, tells you the day and time. Um, I was in the, the career room, the, the, the career center at Fuller, looking through the binders. Does anyone remember how we used to have binders before the internet? And so there these big binders, and you go and you flip through the binders, because churches would send a, a sheet telling the job that they had. They'd send them out to all the seminaries, and they'd put them in the binder, and you'd flip through the binders. And 
I, I had this, like, God met me in that, in, in that career center one day. I was sitting there, and I was about to graduate, and I was flipping through. And I was so sad. I was so sad to graduate. I didn't want to leave. I, I didn't want to leave Fuller, but I was like, it's a problem. It's school. you got to graduate. you got to go on. You can't just pay tuition forever. <laughs> I, so I'm flipping through, and I started seeing all these jobs that looked really interesting in all different denominations. And, and I talked to some people in Churches of Christ, and I always felt this sort of sense of like, yeah, we could probably have you do something. <laughs> and like the contrast between the, we could probably have you do something, and these jobs who were looking for new graduates. And I was like, do I want to stay in the Church of Christ? Does this matter to me? And I decided it did. I just, in that, in that moment, I decided it did. I was like, you know what? I'm not going to leave right now. I may leave eventually, but I'm not going to leave right now. I'm not going to. I'm not going to leave for a job right now. And so I went into chaplaincy, and which has turned out to be just an amazing gift. Um, I ended up doing a CPE residency, and um, and loved chaplaincy, and I did that for the next six or seven years until we moved to New York. I did it in New York, actually, when it's a hospital in Upperside, Manhattan, for a couple years. And um, then in 2001, a few big things happened. Aiden was born. He's going to be 21 in <laughs> like six weeks or something, or two, a few months, a couple months. And 9 11 happened. And I had this little newborn in my arms, and this city that we've come to love over the past couple years was like, and I was on maternity leave. I was taking an extended maternity leave from the hospital. Um, and the Manhattan Church of Christ, their children's minister, left to go get a PhD in DC. And so they needed another minister. And my heart just felt a little too tender with this like newborn baby. The idea of going back into the hospital was just a little overwhelming to me. And I really wanted to work for the church. And I really wanted to be part of the ministry team, and that's what this was. They already had three people on staff, and they, and they wanted me, and they really, and, and, and in 2001, Manhattan Church of Christ became a fully gender egalitarian community. Just, they studied it, made a decision in the beginning of 2001, they changed the practice. And so it was this open door. And so I started with the Manhattan Church of Christ in the summer of 2001. The, the hospital was giving me maternity leave, but the Manhattan Church of Christ was like, you need maternity leave, let's go. Let's get started. And uh, so um, and I was there until I was 31. And last year, uh, we moved back to California, and I said goodbye to that community after 20 years. And... Um, did, wore a whole bunch of different hats there, and it was amazing. It was an amazing, beautiful um, gift to me, and they, they are amazing people. And so I did um, did a lot of congregational life, got to do quite a bit of preaching, um, got to do lots of women's ministry and lots of pastoral care. So, so I'm here today in this new chapter of my life when I moved back to California. I was like, yeah. My 50s, and we should do something else. We should mix it up a little. Let's 
still have other three other kids at home, so we packed up and moved. Now we're in Long Beach, California, and uh, in between, I'm looking back at Long Beach Memorial Hospital as a chaplain, like I did in 1998, so that's funny. And uh, so that's me, that's, that's my introduction. We're gonna talk today about preaching, and preaching what matters. Preach sermons that matter, preaching that matters. So let's, um, let's pray. Gracious God, we come together as people who believe that you love us. We believe that you're working, that you're working through us, that you're working all around us, that you're working through the people that we're with, that you're working in our communities. We believe that you haven't given up on us, on our, our, our homes, our families, our neighborhoods, the country churches, that your love is so much bigger than any obstacle we see, and your love conquers death, and we're here as people who hold on to the love, the divine love that conquers death, and we need that, we need that so much today. So bless us as we gather in these few minutes, open our ears, give, give me the words have me say, and we pray that whatever you want to do here, that what I say will be received in uh, the infinite places in people's hearts uh, where they are looking, seeking, and listening for you. In Jesus' name, amen. So, what do you guys think about Preaching era. Are we are we moving into a we moving into a time in history where we're not going to have sermons anymore? Where preaching is going to be like passe? I hear a lot of people say this. Do you hear people say this, or is it just me? Are they just saying? I hear a lot. Of people are like, this is the TikTok generation. They are not. They don't have time for sermons. They need things quick. You got to you can do something. What do you say? Yeah, iPads. I mean, some people I've heard like what like watch the like. Sports scores from their phone in church. Do you know it? So, so crazy. <laughs> 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 what do you guys hear? What do you hear about sports? Nothing about sermon, but about church. Yeah, what do you hear? and maybe like the 
authority of a minister is going to come much more through your relationship with the congregation and not the polish of your speaking. That's such a great comment. Such a great comment. You can find more polish. Right. You can't maybe find somebody who knows you and knows what your community is going through. Yes. Yeah. I was going to say that it, it seems that, you know, over the last so many years, we've, we've switched into where we're doing mostly topical sermons. Mm -hmm. And I think we need to get back to preaching the gospel and, and teaching the Bible through while we go through it. Because people don't, they want to know why do we believe what we believe? Not just, we all assume we believe in this is what you believe, so we're going to go, we're going to talk about how you behave and how you do this and how these things are relevant. But if you don't know where it's coming from and why I should know that the Bible is real and can be believed, yeah. I think that's a thing. Yeah, it's interesting. That's an interesting comment because someone might Google or search on YouTube like, a topic like sin and forgiveness, something, but they're not gonna they're not gonna search up like Acts two, which yeah. we're gonna talk about today. They don't know that. They don't know to search that, right? And so that's yeah, that's good. Yeah. What kind of related to that point is, uh, you know, just sort of the, the why, but also kind of you know, there's so many places where you can't get kind of therapeutic messages a lot of times. Right. Interesting, yeah. Yeah. A couple more comments and then we'll go. Yeah. Uh, I think also, especially like when it comes to my generation, you're welcome. Um, like people have become like a lot more like cynical and skeptical regarding like church authority. So like they may go to like a particular church and the pastor may say something, but like they just like don't particularly care. So I think that's, that's a really important comment. I think that's a really important comment. That we're in a time where authority Right, and the authority of the pulpit is so different than a generation or two generations ago, a hundred percent. And the authority of like the local church, you know, Rex. So, yeah, I think your church and preaching is running on things like consumerism and our own integrity. There's too many pastors that call to question the integrity of others. But one thing I always think about preaching. <clears throat> Is as valuable as exegetical theological study is for preparing sermons, spending time with people is just as valuable. And that's where the sweetness of preaching comes.
The battle I prepared for is not the battle I face. And even when we're talking about, I think one of the biggest things that marks this generation is the fact that things are moving rapidly. And this generation is not going to last very long before the next. And, and things are changing so rapidly that I had comfort for a while as a leader saying, you know what, I don't care about my authority. I never wanted authority. Let's put authority in the Word. And I thought that that would be solved. But now we're in a time where that doesn't have the authority either. It's, it's a good book. Mm -hmm. You know? Right. Yeah, oh, this is really good. I think we painted a really interesting picture here of kind of, kind of where we are. And I do think this question of thinking about preaching that matters is really a vital question. Um, because first of all, of course, you don't want to waste anyone's time, including your own. This is, if you are in a church where you're going to have a pulpit for, I don't know, 20 minutes, half hour, on every week, you're going to have that space, you got to use it well, right? Because people will stop giving you that time. Absolutely, right? They're not, they're not going to do it because they're supposed to anymore. Like, that's, that is gone and out the window. They're not going to do it, as, as we're saying, because that's the only place they're going to get, you know, that they can find spiritual content. There's tons. I mean, I can't tell you how many conversations I have with people talking. I was talking to a girl a couple months ago, and she's like, I just watch a lot of preachers on YouTube, and these are the things I hear them saying. And I'm like, she's doing her research on YouTube. Of course she is. That's what we do, right? Um, and so thinking about how that are truly relevant. And what's your name? Angela. Angela. So like Angela, what you were saying, um, and I can't remember who it was, uh, who said you should preach with the Bible in one hand and the New York Times in the other hand. Do you guys remember that quote? It's one of the, one of the big preaching guys. Um, the way I like to think about it is that in preaching, you're listening to God and you're listening to the people. You have to do this. All the time. And and what are you listening to? Um, what are they, where are they discouraged? Um, where do they need hope? What are they asking? I mean, we, when we lived in New York, there was this little bagel store in our town. We, we literally kept in business. My family was there multiple times every day. And I would stand in that bagel store and listen to the conversations around me. It happens so many times. What are people talking about? What are people stressed about? I mean, right now we've got this whole thing going on with the Supreme Court or Roe v. Wade. What's under that? What's under that? What's the anxiety that's under that, right? Listening to the conversations and then going deeper and then deeper and then deeper. What's the longing? What's the fear? Right? And where does Jesus meet those longings? Where does Jesus meet those fears? Right? Preaching from that, from that place. Um, okay. So good. Got our, got our feet wet there a little bit. A um, couple, couple of the negatives.
Um, some of the some of the negatives I hear about preaching, and definitely kind of the preaching. I mean, I come from a church, but I'm not church Christ. For most of my time there, we had 45 to 50 minute sermons. I feel that that's very unusual. Um, and of course, we were always the, the ministry. The congregation was pretty much okay with it, but the ministry team were like, "Seven baby shorter." No one has that kind of attention span. But even with, even a 20, 25 minute sermon, can people can people listen for that long? You know, how can you preach in a way that's engaging? And, and what is the what is the correct length? Right? But I think for a preacher, there's a fine line between. Finding the length of sermon that really serves your congregation and saying all the things you really want to say. <laughs> because sometimes if you get in everything that you really want to say, they're only going to get 50% of it anyways. You know, and maybe you need to save it for next week. Or we all know that some of our best material has to stay on the cutting room floor, whether we're talking about writing or preaching or teaching or whatever, right? Um, so attention spans. How do people learn? I, I do think that we are rewiring our brains. I think that our brains are changing because of technology. My brain is changing because of technology, and this is like teaching an old dog new tricks, right? Um, I guarantee you that my seven-year-old and my 10-year-old, their brains are forming very differently because they've got like stimulus response, just like crazy, right? So how do people, how do people learn? And that's a really, it's a really good question when we think about preaching. We, um, you know, I love, I love preaching. I'll just tell you, I love to preach, and I love studying preaching. I love homiletics, and I love looking at how preaching is in different cultures. I went to a seminary that was primarily African American uh, for my doctorate, and I love African American preaching. I love the, the, the call and response and cadence, and, um, but how, but how do people learn? And, and generally, these sermons are one person talking, and a bunch of people listening. Oh, I know what I was going to ask you. Raise your hand if you've had a sermon change your life. Can you think of a sermon that's changed your life? Like, I'm not going to ask you to tell me which one, but I've had sermons change my life. A hundred percent. I've had sermons at these Bible lectures change my life. So I'm not really ready to give up on sermons. I, I, I think that there's, I think that we can move with the culture. I, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not ready to give up. And as I'm going to go into an Acts 2 year, I think we were really strong. As I, I, think, I think you said, Josh, that the word is going to be proclaimed. We have a strong heritage of preaching. But we do need to think about how is it contextualized. I mean, that's one of the things we do with preaching, right? We take the word and we contextualize it. We micro-contextualize it into, like, our little circle here. How am I going to contextualize this word? But we also contextualize it to the culture. And one of the biggest mistakes we can make is say this is to, is to say this is how I preach. This is how I preach. This is how I learned to preach. This is how I believe I should preach. And not be open to moving as the culture moves. And you have people learn because you want them to learn. Preaching is fun. I mean, writing a good sermon and getting up and preaching it is fun, but it's not primarily for us. It's fun, but if they're not getting it, then that's not what, that's not preaching. That's, that's a hobby you can do at home, right? You preach to the mirror, and it's just for you. <laughs> Which is, it's not that. Um, so, 
really thinking about how people learn. Another complaint about preaching that I think is really good, or really important, is that it can be very hierarchical. And so a question is, you know, does it come from, is it, is it Christian? Is it really Christian? Um, in the truest sense of the word, as people who believe in this upside-down kingdom, are we promoting something that's hierarchical by having a preacher? And, and that's a really good question that I think every church needs to ask. Because churches are not intended to be hierarchical. We love hierarchy as a, as a, as a people, you know? The people wanted a king. We love hierarchy. But that's not essentially Christian. Right? We are all sojourners. We are all disciples. And I don't have a good answer to that, but I do think it's something. I think it's a question to wrestle with. It, are we, am I, by my preaching, are we, by our model, imposing some sort of hierarchy? Um, and, there's, and there's lots of other things to ask about. Okay, so let's take. Let me take a minute and read. Through. I'm going to read Acts two. So we're just going to take a take a take a beat here, make yourself comfortable, and I'm I'm going to read Acts two because I really love Acts two as a passage as, as a text to examine preaching. So if you want to close your eyes and picture the scene, it is such an amazing. When Pentecost Day arrived, they were all together in one place. Suddenly, a sound from heaven, like the howling of a fierce wind, filled the entire house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be individual flames of fire alighting on each one of them. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to in other languages, as the Spirit enabled them to speak. Now there are pious Jews from every nation under heaven in Jerusalem. When they heard this sound, a crowd gathered. They were mystified, because everyone heard them speaking in their native languages. They were surprised and amazed, saying, look, Aren't all the people who are speaking Galileans, every one of them? How then can each of us hear them speaking in our native language? Parthians, Medes, and Elamites, as well as residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, the regions of Lydia, ordering Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them proclaiming, we hear them declaring the mighty works of God in our own languages. They were all surprised and bewildered. Some asked each other, what does this mean? Others jeered at them, saying, they're full of new wine. Then Peter stood with the other eleven apostles. He raised his voice and declared, Judeans and everyone living in Jerusalem, know this. Listen carefully to my words. These people aren't drunk, 
as you suspect. After all, it's only nine o'clock in the morning. Rather, this is what was spoken through the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your young will see visions. Your elders will dream dreams. Even upon my servants, men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they will prophesy. I will cause wonders to occur in the heavens above and in signs on the earth below. Blood and fire and a cloud of smoke, the sun will be changed into darkness, and the moon will be changed into blood before the great and spectacular day of the Lord comes. And everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved.
So, I'm not really going to help with preaching because that's preaching. And then we have Peter stand up and preach. Now, one little note of the text that Willie James Jennings points out that I really appreciate is we often uh, don't notice the verse that says, Peter stands with the other eleven. And so he stands, he's not preaching alone. But then Peter's the one that speaks. But everyone there is preaching. All of the believers are preaching. Um, I have some quotes to share with you. Let me find this one. Okay. So let's just think for a second about this contextualization. Because that's a big homiletics word, you know. That's what we're doing with contextualizing. When we talk about making our sermons relevant, we're talking about contextualizing. Yeah? You take the Bible, you take the world, and how do you contextualize this so that James feels less? Right? Um, so Willie James James says this. Speak a language, speak a people. God speaks people fluently. And God, with all the urgency that is with the Holy Spirit, wants the disciples of his only begotten to speak people fluently to. Um, I guess that's the end of this quote. I didn't write, I didn't write down the whole quote. So he goes on to talk about it, and I think this is so powerful. How, how many of you speak more than one language? A few of us. Like fluently, fluently, more than one language? How many of you have taken other languages? There we go. <laughs> if you're, and, and, and especially, are any of you, um, your native language not English? Anyone here, your native language, your native language is French. Okay, so Lucas, what happens? You grew up like in a church, a missionary church in France, right? So what happens inside of you when you hear church music, the, the songs that you sung in French as a kid, when you hear them sung in French, what does that do to you? Bring you back to like memories. Right? Teach you that. There's something about that native language. My, my um, aunt and uncle and cousins were missionaries in Brazil for many, many years. And my cousins, who, you know, my aunt and uncle were from Texas, but my cousin's Portuguese was really their first language. And I learned from them that singing hymns in Portuguese connected to their heart in a way that singing in English didn't, because that's it's the language of their hearts. And Willie James Jennings talks about how you hear that language and it takes you back to your, your grandma and the smells of the kitchen and the food that you ate. That's why he says, speak the language, speak People. And so the, the intimacy here in this miracle is so powerful that there were no translators. I mean, think about, the, think about just that. There's no translators. I, so I started working at Long Beach Memorial Hospital recently, and in the 25 years that I've been out of chaplaincy, tra uh, translation technology has really improved. And so they have these... Um, they have these things at the nurse's station, these devices you can pull into a room, and I can like speak into the device and push the button, and then the device will speak whatever language I want it to speak. But how do I know, how do I know the device is getting it right? Right? If, if we're talking to each other through a translator, something's being lost. 
miss the power of that point, that God wanted to speak directly in, in, in the language of people. That's what God wants us to do as creatures. I think that point is so, if, if there no, if I make no other points, I think that is the most important point, that we are obligated to contextualize and contextualize and contextualize and learn how to speak the language of the people. Um, paying attention to my time here, I'm trying to decide what's most important to focus on. Um, is there anything else I want to say? Okay, I'm going to go through some points and then we'll talk about the text as we go through. One, um, as we look at Acts 2, that whole group of 120 who were gifted to preach out of um, declaring the mighty works of God and of God in our own languages. That is preaching. Declaring the mighty works of God in our own language. Okay. So the 120 of them are preaching from a place of disorientation. Think about what they've been through. We've had a crazy couple years, right? So have they. Imagine. Imagine the emotional roller coaster. Imagine the trauma that, they're, that they've gone through. So they're preaching from a place of disorientation. I think that is so important for us as preachers, as leaders, to recognize we can never wait until we have it all together. Because we won't. We are preaching as people. We are, we are preaching as fellow disciples as fellow journeyers. And we are, we're going to preach from a place of disorientation. Some days we're going to feel more disoriented. It's not quite as much, right? But they're preaching from a place of disorientation. Number two, um, everyone thought they were broke. It's an important point. I don't know if you guys know, Charles Campbell wrote a book called, um, it's called Preaching Fools. And it's about kind of the inherent foolishness of preaching, you know, as, as Paul talks about. That we are standing up and with our voice and with our bodies, we are saying that death isn't going to win. I know what you see in the news. And I know how discouraged you are. And I know how overwhelming it is. But I believe that God's got us. And a lot of people are going to look at us and say, you are a naive idiot. Open your eyes. You don't know. You don't know what you're talking about. We risk looking foolish. We risk looking, um, I, I'm all about, like, really intellectual preaching. Like, bring your whole brain. But if your goal is to be an intellectual, I mean, and I, I've made this joke, or this comment a few other places, and I don't know how well it plays. It's definitely not. If, you're, if, if your goal is to be fascinating at cocktail parties, don't become a preacher. Because we're a little bit more basic than that. You know? We're not fascinating. We're, we're servants. And they look, they look foolish. And we do too sometimes. And if you worry too much about that, it's going to get in the way. Number three. Be open to something totally new, totally different. 
what was going on with them was so unexpected, so much better than they could have imagined. Jesus was talking about, you will receive what I've promised you. They don't know what it is. It's totally new. And I think we need to hold on to that. That God may be trying to do something totally new that we haven't imagined. And, you know, it's funny, David Scholler, who I told you about, my, um, my, my professor at Fuller, would make little, um, little restoration movement jokes because he knew us, he knew the restoration movement. And he said, I remember so clearly, he's like, some of you, Amy, um, come from traditions where your whole goal is to replicate the New Testament church. And I'm like, yes, that's us. And he's like, but what I want you to think about is not just the first century church, but the last century church. He's like, don't just look at the beginning of Acts, but also look at the Garden of Eden and look at Revelation. Like, look at the whole story. And and we do that, I I think we do it admirably, wanting to be um, like the early Christians. We also want to be like the church that we were 10 years ago. There's something inside of us so often. It's like, this is how we do it. I mean, trying to get a church to do things in a way they haven't done it, it's hard. And, and we hold that in ourselves, too. Like, this is how I do it. And I don't think I have the creativity to change. God, we, have, we believe in a God who, you just don't know. God is always doing things new. Uh, number four, we never preach alone. I think that's one of the most important points that you get from this text is that Peter stands up with the other 11 and Willie James Jennings, get the commentary, get Willie James Jennings' commentary on Acts and use it in preaching. It, he is so poetic and so beautiful. But he, he says, he's like, this is Israel speaking to Israel. He's like, he's, Peter is standing with the other 11 to a crowd of Jews, and the visual of all of the, of the 12 of them up there is saying to them, this is the new Israel. We don't even get that, right? We don't even get that because we're not Jewish and we're not in that context. But what we can get from that is you never preach well. Peter is preaching with all of them. That company of 120 are preaching. And I think it's really important for us to realize we not only preach alone, not only are we not preaching alone um, horizontally, but we're not preaching alone vertically. Someone who passed the message to me and it's my turn now to pass it to someone else who's going to pass it to someone else generations that came before us, generations that came after us. One of the things I like to say, especially to women in the ministry, is that so often we're planting seeds in a garden we can never see. So a lot of the work we're doing is not just for the people that are here with us, but the people who are fine. Number five, which ties into that, we are obligated to invite, encourage, and equip others to preach. I believe that very strongly. Um, I don't think, I don't like the model where there's one preacher in the church and that's the person who preaches. You have church members. Because you know what? Writing a sermon is transformative. I mean, I've been changed when I say a sermon ever changed your life. The ones I preach have really changed my life. So we're obligated to share that. And the congregation needs to hear from other voices, not just yours. Um, Number six. The language in the book of Acts over and over is witness. You will be my witnesses. You are my witnesses. As preachers, we're witnesses. And our sermons are our testimonies. 
whatever, it, it may not be a classic testimony where I tell my salvation story, but every single sermon is a testimony. So every sermon comes out of a heart of faith. And if you find yourself feeling burnt out, feeling discouraged, moving away from your own salvation story, that is a clue that you need to take some time. You need to find community. You need to find a spiritual director. Maybe you need to find a therapist. Maybe you just need a handful of friends that you're going to meet with and talk about what is my salvation story today? How is God saving me today? How is Jesus saving me today? Because you know what? I'm kind of discouraged. I'm afraid. And so where is Jesus meeting me in those places? And I can only preach out of that experience. Uh, two more here real quick. Well, we already said this one. Seven, preaching is all about contextualization. We're putting the mighty works of God in the language people can hear. That's it. Every single time. And sometimes when I talked about like how do people learn, I'm hearing really interesting conversations about dialogical sermons. Google it. Um, it's kind of a new thing. But it's it's somewhere between a sermon, the preachers that I'm hearing talking about dialogical sermons still write out, some of them write out a full manuscript, but they put in questions. And they either ask the congregation a question, the way you would do in a college classroom and have them talk back, or you ask the questions, they turn to your neighbor and take, take four minutes and turn to your neighbor and share a time when you, when you were lost. Can you, can, you, can you share a time you were lost or when someone you love was lost? Share that and then come back, right? So how can you, in your sermons, um, really think about learning styles and perhaps engaging them in the talking is going to help. So that's, that's a pretty good way of doing sermons. That's a good thing to think about. Last thing, and this is the most important. I you guys know this. This is God's work. It's not ours. And if it becomes about me... It's a time to take a break. It's a time to step back, mix things up, and figure out how do you find your first love? How do you find the Jesus who called you into preaching in the first place? Because we always, always have to remember that it's God's work, and we are honored to be invited into the church. That's all the time we've got. Thank you so much. I'll hang around for a few minutes.